Our confession of faith this morning is the Apostles' Creed, and I would ask you to open your pin books to page 845. Church, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of life, and life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. I can add a prayer this morning and prepare our hearts for God's word from Elder Ken Abbott. I would ask you to listen to these words from Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because but understandable what the will of the Lord is. We will close our corporate prayer with the Lord's prayer, which is our custom. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we bow before you this Sunday morning in reverence and humility. We come admitting our foolishness and our blindness to thy will. We often believe we are wiser and more loving than you, and much too often we seek to use prayer to manipulate you, to manipulate you into doing what we want. At times we are full of turmoil and anxiety because we do not completely trust in your wisdom or believe that all your ways are best for us. We try frantically to fix our problems according to our own foolish thinking. Heavenly Father, forgive us. On the cross, Jesus Christ submitted to your will and your plan, choosing to pay for all our iniquity, sin upon sin. And now we stand before you as perfectly righteous, sons and daughters of you, even though in this world we will continue to struggle with blind foolishness until that day when we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face, now we know in part, but then shall we know, even as we have been fully known. Lord, you are patient and persistent with us, and we thank you that we cannot change ourselves. For if we could, we would also take credit for our wisdom and our discernment. Instead, you have made us so completely dependent on you for every good thought and deed that we can only boast in you and thank you for promising to complete the good work you have begun in us, even when it is against our will. Now, Lord, our prayer, continue to soften our hard hearts and open our blind eyes more each day. Enable us to see daily, see you more clearly until we stand in thy presence. Father, we long to change. But Lord, keep us near the cross so that we can do that, always needing and looking to you for mercy and hope. Lord, hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, hear the petitions and praises of your people. You know where there was prayer this morning. Though not speech that were true, and you know each heart. 
Grant to each that which, which is most needed in your mercy, grace and wisdom. We pray for those of our church family on our prayer list. Continue to strengthen and encourage them. And we pray for Pastor Jerry's mother, Shirley, that the doctors may diagnose and correctly administer medication to her. And Father, this morning we would ask you to bless our tithes and offerings to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now, to our Lord, who was able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him and to Jesus Christ our Savior, we pray the way he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not unto temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The ushers, please come forward. Let us continue our worship with hymn number 730, or excuse me, hymn, I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say. It's in your bulletin.
means standing and together, let us confess our sin unto the Lord. Together, Lord, we confess to thee sadly our sin. All we are tell to thee, all we have been. Purge thou our sin away. Wash thou our souls this day. Lord, make us clean, faithful, just thou art thou. Forgiving all, loving and kind art thou when, when poor ones call. Lord, let cleansing blood, blood of the Lamb, pass o'er our souls. Amen. The words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is our assurance of pardon. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Thanks be to God. Let us continue our worship song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Please be seated. And here to proclaim God's word to us is Elder Ken Abbott. Ken. Well, hello there. 
I assure you that no one is more surprised than I in my presence in the pulpit this morning. <laughs> Jerry came up to me uh, as I was departing uh, the building the last Sunday after Sunday school and uh, told me of his situation and uh, asked very gently if I would consider filling in. So uh, I have had precisely less than one week preparation time, both mentally and uh, um, as far as the material is concerned. Uh, didn't have any time to come up with a clever title, so you're stuck with what sounds like a seminary lecture. I assure you it's not. Um, but I did decide to draw upon uh, the material that we've been going over in my Sunday school class in Second Peter and Jude um, recently, which, uh, interestingly enough, does have a great deal to do with uh, biblical eschatology. And those of you who were here last week will probably remember that in part of his sermon, Jerry did mention the presence of the Greek word and the text from Mark from which we get our word eschatology. Um, so perhaps it was uh, divinely provided that uh, the, the subject was immediately at hand. I have to apologize in advance to my um, regular Sunday school attenders. Um, you've already heard a lot of this. Um, so you get to decide if I've said it better the first or the second time. <clears throat> so eschatology, um, one of those $20 systematic theology words. Um, it is um, basically, it is the, the study of what the Bible has to say about the, the end times, the last days, uh, whether that be the day of the Lord or the day of God, uh, depending on the language used in the text. Uh, it, it, it means either a time of coming judgment and wrath or a time of the great consummation of all things, uh, particularly centered upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as a matter of interest, it holds a great deal of fascination, uh, not just within the, uh, the Christian church, uh, but within the, uh, the culture as a whole. I, I put it to you that if you announce plans to hold a new Bible study on the book of Revelation, uh, you will basically have to beat them off with a stick. Um, be prepared for a standing room only attendance of you sort of thing. Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel, a lot of the passages in the Bible are endlessly fascinating for many of us. Um, it goes outside of the church, however, within the culture, um, perhaps dating myself a little bit, but according to the New York Times, the number one U.S. nonfiction bestseller for the entire decade of the 1970s was a little book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, which is supposed to have like something like 10 million copies in print. The Left Behind series, of course, in the 1990s was a huge phenomenon. It has spawned not just a, a whole series of books, of which there appear to be the writing of which there's no end, um, but um, also uh, movies. Um, there's a whole children's or, or young adult uh, version of the Left Behind series. It's, it's its own cottage industry at this point. Um, there have been an ongoing popularity of conferences called specifically for the study of the prophetic word, going all the way back into the 19th century in this country as well as in the UK, continuing to this day. Um, if you're not too late for it, you can book now a cruise conference on biblical prophecy that will take you to just about any place you care to go, whether it be the Caribbean, to Alaska, to the Holy Land, whatever. So, but you will be regaled with plenty of information about uh, biblical prophecy as well, too. And this all speaks to this, this insatiable human curiosity about the future. The future is unknown to us. We have uh, not just interest, we have certain anxiety about it as well, too. We want to be sure that everything is going to work out well in the end. And so when the Bible speaks on this subject, it naturally attracts a great deal of attention. Well, why does the Bible contain predictive prophecy, a description of the things yet to come? If we look into the pages of Scripture itself, uh, we find that one of the main reasons um, for uh, predictive prophecy was the authentication of a prophet from God. Um, the test of a true prophet was if what he said in the name of the Lord came to pass or not. If it does not, he is a false prophet, and the scriptures say specifically you're not to listen to him. So, 
Uh, in 2 Peter, that we're going to be turning to our attention to here momentarily, uh, Peter spends um, the entirety of, of chapter 2 of that letter uh, castigating the false teachers that were plaguing uh, the church at the time. And I would ask you to bear in mind uh, this uh, idea of um, the test of an authentic prophet uh, regarding the accusations that the false teachers are going to make in the third chapter of Second Peter regarding the apparent failure of Christ to return as promised. Another reason uh, I think that uh, the Bible contains predictive prophecy is to assert in very bold terms the sovereignty and power of God over time and history. God has declared from the beginning what the end shall be. Isaiah, who was definitely a true prophet of God, in the 46th chapter of his book uh, says um, this of, uh, of, as a statement from God himself. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far, far off, and my salvation will not delay. A third reason uh, why the Bible probably contains um, predictive prophecy is that it brings comfort, hope, and assurance for God's people. His promises... And predictive prophecy is basically a promise, um, are trusty and true, completely reliable. It does not make any difference what we by our own eyes may see, what the outward appearance of things are. We can trust implicitly that if God has said it, it will come to pass. At the conclusion of the conquest of Canaan, Joshua could remind the Israelites not one word not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. Every single one of them. The author of the book of Hebrews builds on this statement and exhorts his readers, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God says a thing, you can take that to the bank. And one more reason, I believe, for a biblical eschatology is the reason that I've chosen to examine a little bit more closely this morning an answer to the question, well, now that I know these things, now that the Bible has told us this, what do I do with that information? How does this affect my life? How does this affect the way that I live, how I plan? In other words, aside from being intellectually fascinating and controversial, and everybody likes a good controversy, uh, it might also perhaps create a body of preppers, uh, those persons who are uh, investing their time, money, and effort preparing for disruptive, tumultuous times, uh, as many do expect will characterize the end. Um, how does knowledge of God's promises to his covenant people affect their day-to-day -day lives? Um, folks that attend my Sunday school classes will uh, recognize that I have long affirmed the truth that orthodoxy where a right understanding of God's truth leads both to doxology, giving praise to God for the glories he has revealed, just as we have just sung, and orthopraxy, right conduct, uh, a production of righteousness and holiness. So right thinking about what God has revealed to us in his word translates over, it gets into the mind, filters into the heart, and then it comes out in our choices, in our behaviors, and in our attitudes. And it is this sanctifying effect of biblical eschatology that I want to unpack for you a bit this morning. And so to do this, we turn to the second letter of Peter, the third chapter, verses 13 through the first half of verse 15. I had a license to amend the text slightly there. You will find this on page 1019 of the Pew Bibles, if you are reading there. I can't tell you what page it is in whatever Bible you might have or whether it's on your phone or what have you. So it's, you just have to get along there by yourself. So 2 Peter chapter 3, 
beginning in verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. You will note the position of the word promise in verse 13. The promises of God form a key concept in this entire letter, both from those who affirm them and from those who call God's trustworthiness into question. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, by which he has granted to us his precious and great promises uh, concerning salvation. The full realization of which was yet future for his readers, just as the fullness of our own salvation is as yet unrealized for us today. On the one hand, we can say we are as justified as we're ever going to be, and we have righteousness and peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord by faith in him, and that is an unshakable thing. But what we are to become, as Paul says, we have not yet seen. We have not yet been translated into the immediate presence of our Lord. We have not been glorified with resurrection bodies the way that his body is. And what he has promised to us will be our future as well, too. So again, those promises are there. They had not been fully realized um, at the time that he wrote this letter. Um, no one sitting here has yet been glorified or taken into the immediate presence of the Lord. So we hold fast to these promises as part of our Christian faith, just as much as the first century believers did. Uh, indeed, by that very faith, we have entrusted ourselves to Christ, putting our lives into his hands, counting on him to deliver us as he has promised. And central to the many tremendous promises the Lord Jesus Christ has made to his people is his assurance that is recorded for us in the 14th chapter of the book of John, part of the upper room discourse. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we have just confessed in the Apostles' Creed, is part of the bedrock of our faith. The thing, the foundation upon which we stand. It is not negotiable. It is not made up. It is not fictive. It is a true and certain thing. The second chapter of this letter, as I'd already mentioned, Peter devotes uh, to a devastating takedown of the plague of false teachers that were afflicting the church in his day and unhappily continue to afflict the church to this day. Showing absolutely no mercy, he eviscerates them for their immorality and for the deceptions they attempt to perpetrate on the unwary. At the end of our study of, of chapter 2, we were always all very tempted in church to say, so Peter, tell us what you really think. Uh, it is really quite, uh, quite, quite a, uh, an indictment, to say the least. Well, evidently, one trick of these false teachers was to sow doubt regarding the reliability of Christ's promises, specifically his return. He quotes them in, in verse 4 of chapter 3, uh, asking this, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, these false teachers were saying, Well, come on, what's the holdup? Maybe Jesus hasn't returned because he's not going to. Or maybe he isn't coming back because he can't calling into question both his trustworthiness as a prophet, he predicted something that hasn't happened, evidently isn't going to happen, as far as the false teachers were concerned, so doesn't that automatically make him a false prophet? He said something that didn't come to pass. It also calls into question his competency as a savior. Well, we can't trust him on this. Can you really trust him about anything? Furthermore, if he said he was going to come back and he hasn't come back, maybe he can't come back, maybe he can't deliver you either. So the false teachers are claiming that the Christian Savior is a fake and that their faith is based on a lie. 
It's almost as if they were saying, well, you can dispense with all of that. We know better. Listen to us. We have better knowledge, deeper knowledge of the truth of these things. Don't pay any attention to Jesus of Nazareth. And that can be corrosive, corruptive, awful stuff. Introduce that into any congregation and you will very quickly disrupt its peace and its purity. It's designed to raise serious doubts. Like I said, it was, uh, it was a, a tactic of the false teachers in order to draw a following away to them for themselves for their own benefit. Well, Peter devotes the next several lines in chapter 3 to proving that the false teachers have no idea what they are talking about. Their mocking is foolish and ignorant, and believers should therefore pay them no heed. He describes the coming fiery judgment of the current order. God is preparing a renovation. He's clearing out the old and corrupt and the unrighteous, and he is instituting a new order, new heavens and a new earth that is characterized by righteousness. And Peter reiterates that this is something God has promised for a very long time. When he speaks of new heavens and a new earth, he invokes the prophecies of Isaiah again. In chapter 65 and chapter 66, the prophet declared, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, the sound, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill up or fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or, build children for, or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And then he continues in chapter 66, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. And I imagine that a lot of you are already picturing, as you're, you're hearing, the cadences uh, and the promises uh, that uh, Isaiah spoke uh, in the name of the Lord, um, that which was realized to John in his great revelation. Hear these things, these promises um, of the greatness of this new Jerusalem, and you automatically think of chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. Images of an everlasting life of blessing and abundance, life to the full and not death, peace, the absence of sorrow and tears and an overflow of joy. And all of this awaits the one who has placed his or her trust in Jesus Christ. Indeed, Peter says, we are waiting for the realization of this precious and great promise. Now, when he says waiting here in the Greek, and the English just doesn't capture it properly. It's not merely standing around, twiddling thumbs, or sitting endlessly as if in a waiting room while the doctor is late, which, by the way, never happens, does it? So. Um, but eagerly anticipating, greatly desiring, looking forward, craving to see its fulfillment. Believers should yearn to the very fiber of their being for the day of Christ Jesus. It's a small comparison, but picture a small child at the beginning of December. The, the, the days and the weeks ahead, just, they just kind of yawn. It's like one of those pullback camera shots you see in the movies uh, where the, the horizon just seems to recede endlessly. Um, 
Christmas is just never going to come. Such a long time away. And that child is usually fidgeting, hyped up, restless. Christmas candy, of course, contributes to all of that. Um, But that's how we as believers should be regarding the return of Christ. We should be looking for it as Christmas and birthday and the 4th of July and whatever your favorite holiday is all wrapped up into one and then to an exponent, you, know, you can put the exponent on it that you want to, to just raise it to the highest, highest degree. But while we are fidgeting like this, Peter says, we should be diligent, working extra hard, paying attention to all the details, turning over all the stones. And to what end? What are we working toward? Uh, what are we... Um, dotting our I's and crossing our T's about, that we may be found by him without spot or blemish. Now, what does that mean? Clean and tidy, liver spots are all gone, the acne's all cleared up. Um, What key element of old covenant worship required a spotless individual? Free of all imperfections. Well, of course, in celebration of Passover. The instructions were very clear and explicit that the sacrificial lamb had to be perfect without spot or blemish. And how does the word of God describe the lamb of God? Well, in the first letter that Peter wrote, the 19th verse of the first chapter, the apostle draws his reader's attention to the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The exact phraseology that he now applies in his second letter to what his readers, those in the first century, those in the 21st century, should be considering for themselves. Same words. The believer who trusts in Christ should seek to be found by the Lord on the day of his return as perfect as the Lord himself. This is our standard of comparison. The spotless, blemishless Lamb of God. That's your model. That's the image. Praise be to God. According to the scriptures, the Apostle Paul assures us that that is the very image into which we are being transformed. That is our sanctification. Contrast this to the false teachers who were described in the second chapter preceding as the very embodiment of blots and blemishes. So, whereas believers in Christ are to be without spot and without blemish, the false teachers were spotty and blemished all over. So, be like Christ not like the false teachers who, by the way, deny the return of the Lord. Don't be like them. Furthermore, Peter exhorts his readers, eagerly anticipating this glorious return, to be at peace. Well, peace in what regard? At peace in our relationship with God, as Paul says in Romans 5, for Christ by his death and resurrection has overcome the Father's enmity with the sinner, and now we have peace and reconciliation. We are to be at peace in our relationships with one another across all the sinful divisions of humanity, men and women, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, all of the artificial divisions of humanity broken down in Christ, all have been united together, all reconciled, all are at peace. And we are to be at peace within ourselves, resting in God's sure and certain promises, possessing in his spirit a peace that passes all understanding. And finally, in this passage, Peter directs his readers to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He's reminding them here what he had just said in the preceding verses. Recall part of the complaint of the mockers was that Jesus seemed to be taking his own sweet time coming back, implying that if he hasn't returned by now, he won't come back at all. Well, Peter refutes this assertion by reminding everyone that God has a different relationship to time than humans do. He is not bound by it. He works out his purposes according to his plans and his sovereign rule over human history. If it seems to us that God is dragging things out, Peter reminds us 
that God is patient toward us, his people, both in verse 9 and here in verse 15. God's patience is gracious, merciful. His patience means our salvation. Well, how does that work itself out? Consider the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd was not content to have the 99 locked up in the sheep pen. But he took the time and made the effort to secure the one that was gambling about in the wilderness, heedless of all the wolves and uh, around here, I guess, coyotes. Um, you have to watch out for those. Thieves and things of that nature, false teachers, in other words. God has not accomplished all his purpose until every last man, woman, and child he has given to Christ has come in. He will not be content with anything less than every last soul. 99 is not good enough. Don't round up in the economy of the kingdom of God. Now, there have been any number of instances in church history of persons convinced it has been revealed to them or that they, by their cleverness, have figured out the puzzle in the scriptures and can know better than the Son himself, who claimed not to know the day, when will be the day of his coming. And they have set dates. I mean, the examples can be multiplied almost endlessly, but I, I, I chose one particular one um, to take a look at. William Miller. Uh, was a farmer in New England. Um, he lived from 1782 to 1849. He had no formal education in theology or biblical interpretation, but through his own studies in the scriptures, he determined that Christ would return sometime in 1843. And he developed a rather large following uh, as he preached that message and taught it to his friends or anyone else who would hear, and the message spread. Pamphlets, little books were actually written and printed and distributed regarding all of this. And so there was an awful lot of anticipation, a great deal of excitement, uh, fidgeting, if you will, uh, over uh, the prospects in 1843. Large numbers looked to the skies. There are rumors, not very well confirmed ones, uh, as it turns out, these stories that may have been made by detractors afterwards, that people sold all their belongings, um, including their clothing, and assembled at the tops of hills, so as when the, the rapture would take place, they would not be encumbered by uh, earthly uh, belongings, if you will. We don't have any verification that that actually took place, but it makes an interesting story, doesn't it? Um, now, as you're all undoubtedly aware, 1843 came and went without Christ's return. It didn't happen secretly. It didn't happen in a corner or anything like that. It, uh, it didn't take place. So, um, but uh, Mr. Miller was not deterred. Uh, he decided to go back and, and re-examine his figures and recalculated that, in fact, the, the great day would be the 22nd of October, 1844. So we're almost coming up on the anniversary of that. It would be the grand and glorious state uh, at which uh, the final consummation of human history would take place. So what happened? 22nd of October came and went. The 23rd of October dawned, followed by the 24th, and so on and so on. Now this has gone down in history as the, the great disappointment. That's what it's actually called. So, but you know what? I'm not disappointed, neither should anybody of you here be disappointed that the return of Christ did not occur on October 22nd, 1844, or whenever, and it was supposed to be in 1843 for that matter. If our Lord had indeed returned, as Mr. Miller thought he would, in 1843 or 1844, and ushered in his visible kingdom and the eternal reign of his saints, where would that have left you and me? None of us was born that long ago. Nobody, I am very confident I can say, without fear of being contradicted, that none of you were here in 1843 or 1844. So, okay. If you have been, please come, come forward and tell us your secret. But nevertheless, um, the patience of the Lord has been our salvation, as Peter has said. He is still bringing in his sheep. Someday he will have brought them all in, and we look forward with eager anticipation to that day, the marriage feast of the Lamb. But it has not yet come, and because of that, rejoice and be glad because you have been saved, and you will be part of that glorious new heaven 
a new earth. So we look forward, again, with eager anticipation to that day. And until that day, beloved, we should busy ourselves becoming fit to join that feast. We don't want to show up to a marriage in rags and dirty clothes. We want to be in our best possible festival gowns, right? So thanks be to God, however, that he does not leave it solely up to us. As Peter tells us at the very beginning of this epistle, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Those promises, again, upon which our very lives depend. There is no more certain place to put our trust. And this is the sanctifying purpose of biblical eschatology, to make out of us that which we have been called to, that which we, for which God has chosen us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellences of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, beloved, come without delay, eagerly, fidgeting even, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. We proclaim the praises of the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And with Jude, we say, amen. Thank you. Closing hymn, found on your last page of your bulletin, More About Jesus.
Let us pray. And now may the Lord, who longs to be gracious to us, who waits on high to have compassion on us, plant us firmly in the faith, established, steadfast, and immovable through the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.